Hi, Spring fans. Welcome to a beautiful podcast. I'm your host, Spring Developer Advocate Josh Long, and this show is all about the real heroes behind Spring and its ecosystem. How are you this fine afternoon? Guess what I forgot to do? I forgot to publish last week's episode. Uh, I'm sorry about that. That was actually really, really embarrassing for me, and it makes me very sad because that's my... Uh, my first missed week since I started this podcast um, in 2018. I published a couple of episodes in 2018 and then 2019, I started doing it regularly, like every week. And I haven't missed one uh, except for last week. And I didn't mean to miss it. I actually had content lined up and I was all excited, but I got, I kind of got swept away with all the other stuff that was happening. And just, I just plain forgot. Uh, you see friends here in the United States last week was Thanksgiving. Um, and, and, we released Spring Boot 3.0. It's here. It is finally here. And so between release day, which is the culmination of years of efforts and work uh, and trials and tribulations, uh, and uh, the fact that my family was all in the living room uh, gathered from uh, Los Angeles and San Francisco and uh, other Bay Area cities, uh, it's just, it just too much. Too much and I completely forgot. And I'm really, really sorry. Uh, but that said, uh, we're here now. Uh, <laughs> I've got lots of content, and actually now, by accident, uh, by having missed that episode, which I, again, sorry for, um, I have extra, <laughs> I have an extra week's runway, actually, so I think I have enough content to get me through until January, uh, if I just, you know, at the, at the moment. So good stuff there, I suppose. Um, and, you know, it is December 1st. Um, it's a brand new year, uh, month, and nearly a new year. That's the other thing that's kind of crazy, is we're less than, we're, you know, we're a month out from... 2023, which is just nuts. Absolutely crazy. Um, so yeah, we have so much to talk about. First of all, Spring Boot 3 and Spring Framework 6. You know, Spring Framework 6 dropped uh, three weeks ago. Uh, no, two weeks ago, middle of November. And uh, and then Spring Boot 3, building on Spring Framework 6, dropped like a week or two, late, two later, right? So just last week on Thursday. Um, and, uh, and Spring Boot 3 brings several major themes, and we've talked about some of these, the, the new Jakarta EE packages, the new uh, micrometer observability support for tracing and metrics in one big unified abstraction. Uh, we've looked at the problem detail support. We looked at the Java 17 baseline. Uh, and of course, we've talked about the Gravium AOT support, the ahead of time compilation engine uh, supporting Gravium native images. Um, this is a big deal, right? The AOT support is a really, really big deal. It's what allows you to take existing applications uh, and hopefully, hopefully, uh, you know, get them down to, you know, 100 megs of RAM and uh, get them down to, uh, you know, 80 milliseconds startup time, right? I mean, it's not unreasonable or unthinkable. And it's been my pleasure. It's been a privilege just working with all the different ecosystem partners and checking in and seeing where all they are, all of them are uh, in their integrations. And so many of them have already got working proofs of concepts if not outright uh, you know, released code already supporting that. So you can see updates uh, for jhipster, for, um, I just talked to some folks on the Vaadin team. Vaadin makes two frameworks that are of interest to Spring Boot developers. One is Vaadin Flow, which is basically an integration of just, you know, what we what we might call classic Vaadin, right? Vaadin is a, a technology that's had many incarnations, but basically you write Java code and it gives you a JavaScript app, right? Uh, so you have a server, written in Java and it's running Spring and all that, but then the client somehow transpiles uh, from Java to JavaScript and then that's what you get in the browser. So you can 
build your UI using windows and buttons and panels and, and all that in Java code. And then somehow you get this nice, super responsive JavaScript uh, client. I don't know how, don't ask me how, it's magic, it's sorcery, but it does work and it's amazing. Uh, so that's that it works in uh, Spring Boot 3 AOT. Uh, and then also Hela, Hela framework is a uh, framework that it's like, um, a, 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 it's like J-Hipster kind of. The, the conceit of it is a, to make it possible to build a UI uh, and, a, and, a, and a backend, a, a UI using web components and a backend using Spring, right? Uh, and to have this unified component model and eventing and, uh, and all that stuff. Uh, so both of them are working in, a, in AOT now. Uh, the folks over at Axon are working on their, you know, the CQRS framework that's working already. Uh, they're working on that already. Um, uh, job Runner, the uh, distributed job running engine, already has support for uh, Spring Boot 3 and Spring Boot 3 AOT support, GraalVM support. Um, I think my betas is either all, almost done or already done because we already had that basically working before. I'm working on the Kubernetes Java client, getting that to work with Spring Boot 3 AOT. Uh, the oh, just the list goes on and on. I, I mean, it really is just an incredible list. And that's in addition to going beyond what's already supported out of the box in Spring Boot uh, 3 itself, which in turn is the umbrella project that pulls in all these different dependencies from across the Spring portfolio. So projects like Spring Data, Spring Security, Spring Session, Spring Integration, Spring Batch, uh, Spring Cloud, and all the various modules therein, all that is being made to work or has already been made to work with uh, Spring Boot 3 and more importantly, Spring Boot 3 GraalVM AOT uh, native images, right? So uh, just a just an amazing, amazing uh, experience to just be able to sit there and take a Kafka Streams app that talks to a config server uh, and that uses the new declarative, uh, you know, interface-based clients for RSocket and HTTP uh, and then GraphQL and Spring Cloud Gateway and whatever, and just turn it into a GraalVM image, you know, and that starts up in nothing. Uh, it just It just works. Now, I'm not saying that it's always going to just work. There might be uh, some corner cases. Um, and that's, I think, where it behooves you, my dear friends, to um, to invest in a little bit of time to learn all about the new AOT engine and the component model that, that powers it. We have a... Uh, I, I put out a new video just uh, last week, actually. I think maybe I forgot about that. Maybe I forgot about the podcast because I was so mentally wrapped up in getting that episode out. But basically, last week, I put out a new Spring Tips installation, uh, which is, it's a, my friends, you, you wouldn't believe how much work I put onto this. Um, two, three months. I mean, there's animations, there's videos, there's demos, there's, uh, you know, special effects. I mean, it's like a, it's got better special effects than some of the Disney Plus episodes. I'm kidding, of course, but it really, it's, it's, it's a, a lot of work. I mean, just ridiculously hard work. I, uh, you know, I, I hope you enjoy uh, the episode, it took months to put it all together. Seriously, there's just, the script itself is, you know, 30 pages, or whatever. So it's, it's crazy. Um, uh, and it's out there. It's a two hour video. It's a, you know, this is the kind of stuff I, you know, you could, you could uh, try and figure out yourself, but I think it's just, you'll, you'll be well served. Now that said, the beginning, the, the video has three parts, really, realistically. The first is the, uh, the introduction to the basics, which you can follow along uh, as a sort of primer. Uh, on just using AOT from Spring and Spring Boot. Um, and then there's the middle section, which kind of reviews the Spring component model. So if you're curious about uh, some of the nuances of the Spring component model and how things work and uh, and all that, that's just a re, it's a, re, it's a useful revision uh, just for that, you know, if nothing else. Um, and then 
Of course, the, the whole point of that section is to show that these things all also just work in uh, the Gravium AOT world. So, you know, things like uh, XML, you know, by and large should just work. Things like, um, uh, you know, qualifiers and scopes and uh, uh, just proxies and all this kind of stuff, you know, uh, factory beans, if you still use that stuff uh, directly, that all works out of the box. So just an incredible breadth of integration here. Uh, and then the third section looks at, okay, well, suppose it doesn't just work. Uh, suppose you've got some persnickety uh, external dependency that does reflection that's uh, invisible to uh, the Spring Boot and Gravium, uh, uh, you know, processes and mechanisms. Then how do you provide that? How do you furnish the the hints, the programmatic hints that make possible uh, the compilation of that code into Gravium native images? And the Spring provides this whole component model. So, you know, you'd be forgiven if you feel like you already understand the basics uh, to skip the middle part, right? If you already understand that component model stuff, and if you already understand the basics of the Spring Boot 3 AOT engine, you can skip the first part and just go straight to the advanced stuff. Um, but really, by the end of that video, you're really deep in the weeds, right? That stuff is, uh, I hope you don't ever need to use it. Uh, it's it's a lot, a lot of that stuff is what we use as framework implementers to, uh, to take existing stuff and, and reify it, to take existing ideas and things that only work at runtime at the moment and to, uh, you know, to make it work at, at compile time so that we can short circuit a lot of the, um, a lot of the, uh, you know, slow reflection laden, uh, uh, runtime processing. So my friends, uh, check that out. Uh, I'll, you know, I, I hope you get something out of it. I'm also super excited about today's guest friends. This one's a, a big one. It's, uh, Gunnar Morling. He, I, I mean, he's just, he's problematic. Uh, because I keep running into things that he's written that I want to use. And so I don't really have a, I mean, I think a lot of people will probably know him from Debezium, which is this super popular um, change data capture framework that he led. Uh, he used to work at Red Hat um, and uh, he was working on that. And uh, he's, he's, he's just, but he's a Java champion. He just does all this crazy, he's a, he's a mad scientist. You know, I love my mad scientists. Um, he just does all this really crazy stuff. He's a Java champion's Java champion. He's one of those people that teaches other Java champion stuff, right? Because he's just uh, so insightful. Uh, I don't I don't have, I don't know. I don't know what to say. I, 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 I have admired him from afar for a long time. Uh, we, we had, he and I bumped into each other at uh, Kafka, the Kafka uh, show, Kafka Current, I think it's called, in Austin, uh, Texas, uh, and mind you, he he's from Germany, so that's a bit of a schlep. Uh, but we bumped into each other there, had a, a nice conversation, uh, and then we just kind of the conversation just carried on. He's like, "Hey, we should turn this into a podcast," and uh, he was just so so generous and, and gracious. So I appreciate uh, him having taken the time, uh, and hopefully you can appreciate the episode as well because I think you are owed uh, an extra special episode for having missed the last week's episode. Um, and that is this episode, my friends. This is an extra, extra, extra special one. You don't, uh, you don't often get people that have done as much and been so uh, uh, gracious and, and generous about it. So, without further ado, go get Spring Boot three, and then enjoy this episode. My friends. See you next week. I will be there. talking about political division here in my fair country right and um and i think 
the problem with this, the, the coarse political discourse that we have here is that it, you know, it, it, everything becomes very polarized and so nuanced law nuanced opportunities for wins sometimes get ignored or they get overshadowed you know so like i think right like i think gdpr which i always you know especially for europeans i I always make sure i ask about it right Uh, obviously i'm just joking here for the podcast oh yeah but it's but 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 that but i think that's just such a reasonable law you know like it just makes sense oh yeah to do it. And I'm just, and obviously California, where I live, we have a similar right. law inspired by GDPR, but like that's not a nationwide thing. And it's just, just really sad. I think good yeah. policy can work with tech to be, to make things better for everybody, you know? Exactly right. I was about to say, I mean, they have an impact there and can improve the life for everybody, right? Yeah, fingers crossed. But, you know, it's hard to get the tech right. It's hard to get the law right, to get them both right, right at the same time for the same reason. Oh. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, we are also armchair politicians, right? Like armchair quarterbacking, armchair politicians, like armchair well, everything. <laughs> I mean, I'm an armchair technologist and I and I I'm quite sure. I don't know about I don't know about in your fair country, but in here, in my country, my politicians don't understand technology uh at all. And oh, I don't yeah, understand yeah, yeah. I don't I mean obviously I'm not I'm just an idiot. I don't know anything about technology, but I do know a little, you know, like I right. know. I know more than them, which doesn't, it's again, that doesn't know, that doesn't say much, but I definitely know more than they seem to know. Um, and it's, it just, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, I know what I mean. <laughs> you can't, you can't govern a place if you don't understand the fundamental forces that work in its evolution, you know? Um, right. But uh, more, <laughs> just, just hold on tight. We'll find out. I don't know. Is that yeah. what's happening over your, your side of the pond in Germany? I mean, yeah, I guess I, it depends. I mean, you have some people who are under, you know, who are tech savvy and who, you know, come up with good proposals. Probably it's not those necessarily who really make the calls in the end of the day. So they just can try to make their voices heard and hopefully, you know, um, um, champion for specific things. Um, yeah, so I guess it depends on whom you talk to. But do those uh, reasonable Techno, techno, technology-centric policy uh, policies, do they ever become law or do they just get flushed down the drain or ignored or sidelined or whatever? Uh, I mean, hard to think of specific examples. Um, I mean, there is some stuff which definitely is weird, right? So I'm not sure whether you ever heard about this cookie policy. So essentially, when you have a website and you use cookies, you need to get the consent of the user that you that they are fine with you having cookies or they can like choose which cookies and it sounds right. nice in theory but in practice whatever freaking website i visit pop the up. first thing it happens is it gives me this pop-up where i need to choose between a gazillion of cookies and i have no idea what this is about anyways I just like super, cookies. yeah or you it's it's like super annoying right or, or let's say you super. reject all of them and then you go there the next time the same thing will happen because they they don't have a cookie to remember that you rejected all the cookies. So, I forgot about you know, that. That's, so I guess they had, there was a nice intention there. So, hey, we want to Im- improve privacy for people and we want to limit how much companies uh, store about their ways, how they navigate through the web. But then how it turned out is really a pain, you know? Well, okay. but <laughs> So like technologically, do we think that the default for a new website should be, it doesn't know anything about you? 
and that it should be an opt-in thing. Like that's where I actually, I that think that's good, true. Yeah. Right. I think technologically, from a technical perspective, I think it's the better result that websites don't know anything about me. And if I want them to know anything about me, I can yeah. explicitly with a prompt opt-in. Now, how do we make that, that technical goal line up with the current web? Because th that's yeah. the, the policy I imagine was something like websites can't know anything about you unless you opt in. So that has to be very explicit. Therefore, this dialogue. But then you talk about how, <laughs> like, you're right. Nobody thought this through technologically. Nobody said, hey, we can't record the fact that they don't want to be recorded. Right. We, <laughs> there should be an exception to the law. Right. There, there should be know, that like, one cookie. That should be allowed. <laughs> like the, the permission cookie or something. It's a very yeah. simple. If you had done a, a, a like a activity diagram. Right. Yeah. With it, with one program, with it, with one engineer, one architect, something, uh, you know, I think this would have been a much better law. Actually, that's a very silly example. Um, another, Another case that I, I always think is kind of funny, um, I, and I guess in Germany and other uh, advanced car markets, they have cars <laughs> that, you know, they, they, they've been toying with the idea of not having side mirrors, right? Oh, okay, or, okay. Or you do, but maybe they're just cameras, right? Right, yeah, um, okay. Um, and so you can actually get, you know, or, or whatever. There's lots of other ways to communicate that information, right? Right. And it's just, and a lot of them are sort of inarguably safer, right? Like, like the, have you seen those um, rear view mirrors that are actually yeah, just yeah, cameras? Yeah. Right. right? Um, and that's actually a really good idea, right? Doesn't that make sense? I mean, I, that way I can oh, see man. what's behind me. Actually, I'm like, I'm a bit the opposite in that regard. I like it always. I like to, those things to be uh, low tech. And I mean, sure. because I feel there's such a, a huge impact on reliability of stuff. So just to give you an example, yesterday when I dropped my daughter at uh, the daycare, and usually I don't go there by car, I go there by bike, um, just for the record. But yesterday I was in a hurry and I went elsewhere. Yeah. So I did take the car. And then I got back to my car after I had dropped off my daughter. And there was a lady... And she she couldn't get into her car, and she had like this, um, uh, you know, uh, transmitter key for her car to open, and she pressed the button, and it wouldn't do right. anything, and she couldn't get in. Then I thought, well, back in the day when you had like an actual physical lock in your car, right. this just would have worked, right? And now it's all wireless, right. and a bit more comfortable, and, and she was standing there, it didn't work. So you know, and, and oh, actually, then she she pressed true. like ten times, and in the end of the day, she she got. Again, so I don't know what happened, but I just oh. felt, you know, all this high-tech stuff, it, sometimes I just don't want it. <laughs> the, the transmitter might just need batteries. But yeah, yeah, right. I agree. I agree with you. I agree with you. I, I have a, one of those cars where you can use your phone to enter the car. Oh, but, yeah. Okay. But, so, but now, like, the stakes are even, like, you know how much anxiety you get when your battery's low? Right. But now imagine you <laughs> yeah, can't can drive I get home, my car? <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, the anxiety yeah. is, like, double. And you, and. And triple, you know, there's a roadside service called AAA. They can't hack my iPhone. You know, all they can do is let oh, me charge yeah, my phone. Yeah, right. Yeah, you know, like oh man, it's just yeah, a sound like a good silly idea. situation to be in. Um, <laughs> or like so smart, another, smart dual locks. That's another thing. I would never get such a thing. I mean, uh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I tend to think that these things, when done correctly, can be better for us. And so I like those ideas, but. You know, okay, so the, those another thing with those rear view with the with cars, the headlights, right? Yeah. Um, in 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 America, the lights have to be like you have to have a really high beam, and they uh -huh. have to have a regular regular beam. Right. Right. 
And it's either one or the other, right? You're either blinding somebody or, <laughs> or you've just got the regular standard light. So if you're going through fog or snow, then you want one light. And if you're going through regular sort of evening right, right, hours, right. then you yeah. want the other, right? Well, it's also kind of a grand, it's a spectrum, right? There's some, uh-huh. you don't always need the brightest light because it might just be a little bit less clear or a little bit more clear. Or whatever. Uh-huh. Um, and so it's easy. This, uh, cars and other markets have a thing that gradiates that light, you know, right. dims it and, and uses it up and down automatically. So yeah. that way, that way, when people coming, going in the other oh, direction I are see, coming, I see. you know, okay. it's just very, very sensible. But right. in this country, it's not, you can't do that. The cars have to be, Oh, okay. Two, two steps. Okay. That's it. Oh, um, I see what you mean. Interesting. To be honest, yeah. I wouldn't know because my car is really old, like 17 years old or something. So <laughs> I don't know what kind of light a modern car would have. <laughs> it it doesn't matter, right? I just yeah. I but it, like imagine if policy were were informed by technology instead of oh, I see being, being yeah, a reactionary yeah. response okay. to it. You know. Um, gotcha. I was actually. What about the you're you're in you're in Germany? By the way, can you introduce yourself? Before. Oh yeah, sure. <laughs> Who are you? Yeah, so I'm I'm Gunnar, and I work as a software engineer right now with a company called Decodable. Uh, so that's mainstream processing. Um, and most people, and I just started a job like uh, this month. And before that, I guess most people would know me from my work on uh, Debezium, which is an open source tool or platform for change data capture. And I guess we can talk about it. Um, I yes. did that at Red Hat. And yeah, I just like doing open source. I like doing Java. I like doing all the data stuff, data streaming, CDC, all this kind of stuff. I like going to conferences, talk about this stuff. I like blogging. Um, yeah, that's me, I guess. You're awesome. Um, so, okay, let me ask you, let me get back to this Germany thing. Right. We'll get back to you in a second. And I know sure. this is the show. Let's talk about Germany. About no, you. But I'm just very <laughs> curious because this stuff is so interesting to me. Um, what was the response? What was the perspective from people locally when the government announced they were going to do all open source office? Wasn't that a thing? Uh, like they, they, some city had a, had. Yeah, right. So that was, uh, I, I think you're referring to Munich. Maybe. And it's been a long time. Yeah. And they had, oh man, it has been a while, but yes. Yeah, so they did an initiative to move to Linux and all open source. So they did, Linux. Um, uh, you know, what's it called? Open office and all, all this kind of stuff. Right. And now... Actually, did Microsoft Germany headquarters is in Munich. And they, I guess they did not really like that idea too much. And um, I suppose they did some championing uh, to get uh, the organization back to, to Windows. And I believe that's actually what happened. So I believe they are now oh. going back to to off Microsoft Office. Um, and, and, and I don't even know what the stuff there is. But um, so I feel they're doing that. Yeah, but it was definitely an interesting um, experiment. Uh, initiative. Else. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, but it's not like a large scale thing that like every uh, no. you know um, city or every uh, um, administration would do this, right? Well, I was just wondering. Okay, so you're so technology in Germany. What's your story? How'd you get started? Like I, you know, you and I are look yeah like about the same age. Right, I guess. I guess, yeah. I mean, it's a good question. To be honest, I think it kind of was even coincidental. I mean, I had always an interest in computers and in programming. So, you know, I I did that in school and even before school. 
um, um, as I mentioned, I grew up in former Eastern Germany, and um, so I even played like Tetris on like an old uh, Eastern style computer. So you know, uh, I had that interest. But then actually during school, I was really considering many options. So for instance, I was considering to study uh, to become a journalist. Um, so I, at some point, because I liked writing, um, so I, I thought, hey, maybe I should become a journalist. Now, thanks God, I didn't do it. <laughs> I think it was it would have been a huge mistake. Um, but yeah, then I studied this uh, thing which is called um, you know, computer sciences with with a flavor of media to it. So in Germany, it's Germany it's like medium informatic, but you know, the idea is yeah. to do software engineering and give you like a proper computer science background, but then also have classes about 3D animation and and all this kind of stuff. Oh, cool. Um and I kind of ch chose that because it has this it had this media part of it um and then actually i realized hey i really like software engineering and that's what i what what i want to do but it all was a little bit coincidental i have to say i, I didn't think much about it I just you know it sounded interesting it was in the city i wanted to move to and then well i i just got lucky that it really suited my interests and lucky for us too i'm i'm very <laughs> happy to hear it so yeah. uh and what when was this like uh this was in 2000 so yeah i started 2000. in two, uh, 2000 yeah okay very cool so you're so you're um you've been at this for a long time now um oh man yeah thank you for saying that yeah <laughs> well i mean you know uh, the the ecosystem is well the java ecosystem is such an oh, interesting place to be because oh yeah totally it's totally. been around for absolutely nearly yeah. 30 years you know 27 years yeah now. And it's really people. impressive how it renews itself, right? I mean, oh, I yeah. think if you look nowadays, I've, I would say it's more active and more diverse and more thriving than I guess ever, probably. So ever. Really cool. and, and, and it's deservedly so, right? Yeah. It's, it, it's such an interesting place to write software Absolutely. Uh, today. It, even for people who are like you and me, who have been on this roller coaster for many decades. Yeah. The, the fact that I'm still not sure what's going to be on the next turn yeah it's great i mean that's like right it's like a new language every few years absolutely um, and, and i also feel like the uh, let's say the totally addressable use cases i feel this just goes up and up and up so now with like the vector api um or with the better native integration uh, the primitive stuff um you know project lilyput it gets more efficient native binaries so i i feel like all those initiatives what is common to them is that they allow to use Java for more things than you could use it before, right? So now yes. suddenly you can do like a small CLI, which starts up in like a few milliseconds. You can do this in Java. And before you couldn't do it in Java because right. now you can with AOT. With SIMD or the vector stuff, you can do like compute intensive stuff. And I don't know, you could also with the garbage collection stuff, maybe you can do like a, a database in a really good way. And, you know, um, before that, maybe you couldn't do it. So that's what I find most exciting. I Oh, yeah. Did you see... Uh... Uh, Mark Reynolds' uh, recent thing about condensers. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Know, I, I I I skimmed over it. It seems really. really? I need to I need to read more about it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he he has this great metaphor, this great paradigm where he talks about how so much of what we do in 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 language technology is just about moving computation later in time or earlier in time, and so yeah, right. So, for example, you can move it later in time by making it lazy. So a reference right. doesn't have to be evaluated when it's read, right? Yeah. It can be evaluated when it's accessed, for example. Yeah. Uh, or you can make it earlier by pre-computing right, exactly. it at compile time, you know? Exactly. And yeah. 
And so these condensers, they just operate on that. They, they apply different, you know, they, they move different computations to different times in right. the interest of, of faster computation and faster startup and faster whatever. Oh, yeah, 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 totally, um, yeah. And so if you think about it as a framework to apply, apply and, and also to stack yeah. these different, you know, obviously the output of one should be an input of another. Right. should benefit from that. And developers can choose how many, if at all, they they use right so it's a it's a yeah again it's a spectrum right so it's a gradient um yeah and developers you know she'll be able to 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 opt in or or or, or just lead out any or all of these optimizations yeah. and condensers really interesting oh yeah totally to now you're really curious i need to i i need to read it in more depth and i'm yeah curious how you could use it for some projects of mine oh yeah exactly like and obviously, this is just the beginning. They just you you were a Java one, right? Or no, I, I was. I was not this year. No, I was not. Well, you and I saw each other. No, no, we saw each other in Texas. Uh, right for uh, for for current, yeah. Confluent current, which is great. So no, okay, but at Java one, they announced uh, you. You, I'm sure, saw this. I'm just talking to the audience, uh, who I'm sure also saw this too. So maybe I'm just talking to my dog. Uh, but uh, they announced that GraalVM will be part of the Open JDK, right? The right. I like that, right? I mean, it, it used to, so what, how was it? It was a part, the compiler, the JIT was there for some time, then they removed it. Now it's yeah. all coming back. So, no, that's, <laughs> but I, I think it's a good good move for the, for the language well, or for the platform, for sure. I mean, up until recently, up until a few versions ago, they had an AOT compiler in Java. Right. Which nobody ever everybody, used, I believe. Yeah, yeah. nobody ever used. Right, exactly. They actually took that out. Right. So now they're so. There's a few things that look like what we're you know Graphium as a JIT. You're right. That used to be an option, and now yeah. it's been taken out by default. Uh, yeah. And then the AOT support, which is totally different from Graphium, native right. image compiler. That was an option, and it's been taken out. Now it's now something like it is coming back. It's a yeah revolving door. Yeah. No, but you know, I I really like that there is this this native story, and I I mean, there's also like people who are skeptical about it, right? Because you can, you're limited in terms of what you can do with reflection, all this kind of stuff. But then yeah. all the frameworks like Spring, I know, are catching up. That Quarkus is doing it, like they you know support this notion of AOT and just providing yeah. all the metadata and configuration and so on. And I really like it. So for instance, I I, I work on a tool which is called KC Cuttle, and it's a command line client for Kafka Connect. So for those people who maybe are familiar with Kafka, they will know, you know about Kafka Connect, which is a runtime and a framework for building connectors, which take data into Kafka and which, yeah. or which take data out of Kafka. And so Debezium is also based on Kafka Connect. So that's why I used to work a lot with Kafka Connect. And the default way you interact with that is why it's REST API. So there's a huge REST API. And if every if a new Kafka version comes out, new stuff will be added to the REST API. And you, knew, you need to use curl to you know set the right headers and all this kind of stuff. So that it's, it's cumbersome to use. And then at right. some point, I wanted to do this uh, command line tool. Uh, so I, I built KC Cuttle, a bit like Cube Cuttle following the semantics of sure, Cuttle yeah. for Kafka Connect. And well, this is uh, built uh, using, uh, uh, well, Quarkus in that case and GraalVM native binaries. And right. what's cool is now this really starts up super fast. So you do this command and you will get a reply, I don't know, within 20 milliseconds, maybe something like that. Yep. And it even is that fast. So I have I have tab completions. I'm a big believer for 
into tab completion. So every CLI tool I think should have like, you know, tab completion to show you right. what are the options, what are the subcommands and so on. So I do have that there in KC Cuttle. And now some of the completions, they are actually dynamically computed. So they need to go to the Kafka Connect backend, and for instance, get the list of connectors. So if I do something like KC Cuttle describe, then I need to put a connector name. So if I want to do this tab completion, I need to know which are the available connectors in this right. connect instance. And even if you do this tab completion, it's fast enough to spin up KC Cuttle to launch it, do this rest call, you know, then give me the names which match what I've typed so far. And it just can be part of your um, experience working on the CLI. I mean, that's really cool. That's so, this so cool. fast, right? I mean, yep. this would have been impossible um, a few years back with the JVM. You couldn't do it. Not even close. And and, and by the way, like, uh, so in the Spring ecosystem, we have a thing called Spring Shell, right? Which is, right. and it's a, it's <clears> not <throat> a, it's, it, it's a shell. It's not just a command line, right? So it's not yeah, just okay. yeah. parsing. So actually, when you, when you create a new instance of it, you're, you have a, a prompt and you can enter commands, you do All tab right. completion, dash dash tab, and it gives you options. Yeah. Uh, and it also has read line support and ASCII art tables yeah. and yeah. You know, interactions, whatever. So uh, that whole thing, it works great in GraalVM, right? So you can create yeah. this application, oh, like yeah, you say, totally. it starts up in 20 milliseconds or whatever. Um, and it's just this crazy, GraalVM yeah. is just a made, like I wouldn't build a CLI in Java two years ago. Exactly. The other thing I wouldn't have, the other thing I wouldn't have built is a Kubernetes operator. Right? Oh yeah, yeah, right, absolutely, yeah. But I can totally do that now with either. Yeah. Uh, I built, you know, I built hints. I built a so in Spring Boot three we have uh, this concept of hints, right? Okay. Um, and uh, they're a, you know, they're they're a it's a Java API that you can use to programmatically contribute JSON to, to the JSON configuration for for GraalVM, right? Okay. Um, so obviously each library should have their own and the reachability repository should have the supplementary ones. But if you have something dynamic and frameworky, then you can use this, uh -huh. this mechanism in Spring Boot to, uh, to furnish that configuration. Oh, yeah, yeah, I see, yeah. Um, though I built hints. I built Spring Boot hints for the official Kubernetes Java client and for vFabric. Um, no, not vFabric, for um, vFabric. Why did I say that? That's the thing from 12 years ago. Uh, no, I was uh, from... Um, What's that fantastic Red Hat Kubernetes client? I don't know. Oh, come on. You're going to like, oh. oh you, 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 you fabricate, I guess. Fabricate. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. That, yeah, that one. So I built hints for that. So you can use fabricate oh. to build these native image controllers in Spring. Oh, just, okay. Yeah, that's, that's cool. So satisfying, right? It's yeah, really yeah, amazing. Totally. You know, 50 megs of RAM or something or... Yeah, Just, exactly on. right. And I mean, the binary size, it's a little bit bigger. So let's say in, Casey, in the case of Casey Cuttle, the binary, I guess it's like 40 or 50 megabytes. So, I mean, it's a bit bigger than it's desirable. Oh. But on the other hand, who, who cares? There's no right? Java. Yeah. It's, it's, no, it's not that bad. Because, uh, by the way, the, the cloud vendors, you know, Amazon and uh, uh, Microsoft Azure, even Cloud Foundry. Do you, I don't know if you ever heard of or used Cloud Foundry, but it was a, it's a cloud platform. That oh, yeah, made, yeah. You know, we built at VMware back in 2011, and it's, um, you know, right. it's just a very nice cloud platform. The original releases, however, the very first few versions uh, were, I think, borrowing a little too much from, uh, in, you know, inspiration from the likes of uh, Heroku and so on. So uh -huh. the implement, the engine itself, the, the cloud itself was Ruby, okay. which is, you know, not great. Uh, and then the client was also Ruby. 
Oh, she's okay. definitely not. Like, that's even worse, you know? Like, Ruby's a mm. nice language, but only if I can put it in a container mm. <laughs> where it's happy and it's got all the dependencies and it's exactly oh, the same yeah, thing yeah, on, yeah. in every instance. But uh, running ruby.exe and running Ruby oh, on yeah, that, I mean, yeah. different versions and all this. And so you're yeah. just distributing, we're just distributing a, a script and there's no Ruby R and virtual machine installed. Now you got to download that. Same thing, yeah. you know, Google Cloud and Amazon and uh, Azure, they all have this like Python-based CLIs, right? Yeah. And I'm just like, why would you build, you know, just, I, I don't want to give any business to Go or anything, but like, just use Go. I love right. Python. Yeah, I've been yeah. using it for 25 years. Yeah. Building a no, CLI I, when you have to ship a runtime? Oh. All right. I mean, that's, I guess that's nowadays uh, what people would use in many cases, right? So let's say also for decodable, uh, the yeah. CLI uh, that's built in, in Golang. Right, that makes a lot of sense, right? And we have so the the Cloud Foundry CLI is built in Go as well. And by yeah. the way, so is a lot of the uh, the cloud itself now as well, right? That's right, yeah, absolutely. And but that it's been more than a decade. But yeah. I, but now I think you're right, you're 100 percent right. It, it, there's no reason it couldn't be uh, a Java application. Yeah, that's true. None. But then also people need to know set. about it, right? So that's that's definitely a problem I see. So if you, in particular, if you talk to like. Now we're coming back to our age. If you talk to younger people or, or like yeah. new new companies, uh, oftentimes they don't really think much about Java. For them, in their perception is like really, oh, that's like the old stuff and we don't want to use it. And then, so for instance, when Google Cloud Run started, which is this nice, uh, you know, serverless way for running uh, containers on Google, right. um, in, in their language instructions, they had like, uh, yeah, I guess Go and Python and even Bash, like, how do you do a server a, a serverless thing in Bash? What they did right. not have is was Java. And I thought, what the heck, man? That, I, that, that cannot be. So now they have it. Uh, but yeah, if you look at it's a, it's it's kind of a pattern. So if you go to those kind of new vendors, they will always give you instructions in all kinds of languages, but oftentimes not Java, at least in the first iteration. Now I feel that's definitely something which needs to change. So you know, there needs to be more eventualization and raising that awareness again that people also should definitely look into java for those kinds of things you know that's so i think it's a matter of like which are what is which audience are you going after do you want the cool kids or do you want the yeah people, the people that pay for stuff right and you know it's gotten a little bit better now you can get you you get programmers uh, that recommend infrastructure that costs money across all languages now but it used to be like if you're running PHP or Perl or whatever, you're not interested in paying for stuff. You just want to yeah, run yeah, your yeah. code, and, and you know. Right. Uh, whereas in the Java space, you know, application servers, right? I mean, like we're used to spending obscene right. amounts of money with the promise that this will get us to production faster, right? Yeah. Um, and so our corporate, our, our cost centers tend to be, you know, because they're more enterprise, they tend to be bigger. They used to be, <laughs> and so you get this like, you know, these markets. These people are catering to like, oh, hey, this is uh, Ruby, Node, PHP, you know. Yeah. Go, these are the cool kid languages. And I just think it's a bit, <laughs> you're, you're right. Like, it's just a bit unfortunate because Java is so productive totally. and so fast and so capable yeah. now. And Absolutely, yeah. Well, I mean, I guess we ever we all can help a little bit with that, right? And tell the cool kids we know, hey, you should also look into Java, I guess. Well, see, we're doing that right now. This is This is us doing that. Doing that little exactly. bit. Exactly. Um, in in the enterprise where people pay for things, which we've established. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I've so one of the reasons I follow you, and one of the reasons I think you and I get or 
you know, could get along very well uh, is because I, I, as much as I like, we just mentioned rest, right? Rest is fine. You know, yeah. Um, <clears throat> I like GraphQL too, but in my heart, in my heart of hearts, at the end of the day, I'm a messaging person, right? Oh, um, I see. Okay. I yeah, just don't right. know. I just don't, I cannot build systems without thinking in terms of messaging. It right. is, you know, I think in terms of, yeah. When I, when I look at REST, I think RPC. It seems like it has all the limitations of RPC, but yeah. none of the speed, you know? Like yeah. Good RPC is binary. It's, com- it's compressed. It's fast. Right, 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 right. Yeah. And it's also got schema. So I, I look at REST and I'm just like, well, if you want to think of HTTP as messages, you know, then I suppose that's very useful. And that at least gives you this adaptable, composable uh, protocol, right? You get the, the benefits of that, uh, yeah. that protocol. But if you're just trying to build homogeneous services in a cluster, you know, uh, there's you've got to there's got to be ways that are better for you. And and oh yeah, you know, totally, absolutely. Even I mean, right, first. yeah, right, totally. I mean, that's that's what I always feel like. People are way overusing synchronous communication nowadays, and sometimes yeah. I feel like parts of this ecosystem even originate from that so right so i like let's say all this distributed tracer stuff i don't want to pick on it i i think it's cool stuff right but mm-hmm. i also feel like it's just overused and there's the, the need for having distributed tracing is well because people do those huge cascades of synchronous call uh flows uh, amongst the gazillion of distributed services and then they don't know what's happening right so they 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 need to do that and i guess you still would want to have some is um uh, inside also if you do it like async you still would sure, want to yeah. know what your flows are but i just feel yeah having those super deep sync call chains that's that's not a good thing right so, super deep call chains synch- synchronous call chains not good yeah it's it's not good to have too many of anything really but especially synchronous ones i'm i 100 with you, agree with you on that um so I, I me i think about messaging i just i really right what was that uh you know gregor hope yeah uh, and B- bobby wolf's amazing book they talk about why messaging and, and that they introduce this term, which I've always clung to, which is temporal decoupling. Right, right? exactly, like, yeah. I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm sure <laughs> others have said that before, but just this idea that I don't need to be there at the same time as right. the person or the client sending it, sending the message. Yeah. Oh, so good. So I get yeah, locational for- distribution and everything else too, you know, but right. that's the most important one. And for many use cases, that's that's uh, just fine, right? So mm-hmm. I don't know, let's say you place a purchase order. I mean, yeah, I guess just telling you, okay, we got it. Um, that that's fine, right? You don't need to synchronously mm-hmm. re- react and say, so hey, it's going to be sent to you by this and that day or this kind of detailed information. Right. You you definitely can decouple uh, those things oftentimes. Or- or you just get a response saying, "Here's the location of the thing you should check to just right to the status." Exactly. You know, yeah. Yeah, but but yeah, I just I, that whole. So do you do you remember we used to talk about staged event driven architectures and event driven architectures and uh, yeah, you know, and service buses and you know these. There's a lot of patterns. I remember it used to be more front and center. Um, yeah. <clears throat> and and nowadays, I I think a lot of that is no longer worth talking about at a high level because it's just it's we've moved on conceptually abstractionally we've moved on yeah. to stream processing right um and stream processing yeah. implies seta right it, it it implies 
It is, a bus is connected to right. Absolutely, yeah. No, that's 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 true. And sometimes I also feel like people are just rediscovering this stuff, right? So, um, I I mean, so you know, it's slightly changing the topic, but um, so there was this time where everybody wanted to do microservices, and they felt so, hey, that's that's the right thing to do. And then they realized, oh, okay, there's also problems with it. So maybe it right. makes more sense to to closely integrate stuff and maybe. Well, I, I'm not saying build a monolith, but maybe build something like in between and maybe a, a monolithic code base with um, patterns which you learn from building microservices. So, I mean, yep. that could be, you know, um, a middle ground. And I, I feel something, it's it's like this this circle of uh, improvements, right? I mean, it's, I'm not saying it's going forth and back. It's like more like a spiral, I guess. But definitely you right. get back to, to learnings which you, of which the industry had before at some point. Oh, 100%. And actually, I... To that end, you're right. There are some people that are retreating to a monolith, but they want to re they want to preserve some of that, some of the benefits exactly. that you would have gotten from an isolated microservices architecture. And right. One we have a project called Spring Modulets. Oh yeah, yeah, I know about it. Yeah, from Oliver. It's it's cool Oliver. stuff. I like it a lot. Yeah, it is yeah. cool stuff. It's just such a brilliant like, and you know, conceptually, it, it's you know, CQRS never implied distributed messaging. It it just no, right. it didn't. It can all be done in the same code base. Why wouldn't you? Take yeah. It? Just brilliant. Exactly. Really good code. Yeah. And of course, Axon is another CQRS framework I quite like. And it's, you can do it. It's all J on the same JVM by default. You know, you have to opt in right. to get it distributed. Yeah. Uh, so. Yeah. That's also what people <clears throat> sometimes use um, Debezium for, right? To uh, change yeah. the capture solution. So maybe for those people who don't know it, it essentially is a tool which taps into the transaction log of your database. So that whenever a, a transaction comes in, it updates something, it, it uh, inserts something, this will be appended to the transaction log. And uh, tools like Debezium capture changes from that transaction log and propagate them to external consumers. So it means you can react to changes in your data. So if there's a new customer, uh, something gets updated, something gets deleted, uh, you know, you, you will be able to react to that and I don't know, maybe update just a cache or send the information over to a, um, uh, to a data warehouse, something like yeah, um, Snowflake, kind of, any kinds of downstream systems. But then uh, people also use it, uh, use it for those kinds of event-driven architectures, as you say. So for instance, to update uh, materialized views, or CQRS views, maybe they have read views. Um, actually, I talk, uh, talked about that Queries. appearance. So, yeah. um, you know, so you could have like a denormalized view of your data in some cache close to the user, and people would totally use CTC change data capture for keeping those uh, things in sync. So it, it, does that in that way does CDC? Um, and by the way, this this CDC predates Debezium. Uh, yes, right? but it's I, a, I think, it's an old idea, sure. I would say. Um, by the way, CDC, I mean, there's many things CDC, right? There's the oh, yeah. sure. of disease control. There is the consumer-driven, uh, what is it? Uh, contracts. Contracts, yeah. And, and my, my yeah. favorite, you know, my favorite is the Caribbean Developers Conference, also CDC. <laughs> so at wow. some point, I would love to go to CDC and talk yeah. about CDC. That CDC. would be awesome. <laughs> oh, that'd be so good. Without having any contact from that CDC about CDC. Exactly right. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yes, it's an old idea. That's true. Um, yeah. And then Debezium is by far the best well-known of it, of course. I'm just right. So now it's I, I have different theories why it got that popular again. I mean, so yes, there was Debezium, as I would say, the first, and really, well, there was there was other open source implementations, but I would say it's the most widely used open source implementation, and it also supports a variety of databases. So you know, there's support for Postgres, 
uh, MySQL, MongoDB, SQL Server, Oracle, all kinds of databases. Um, and right now, there's no other open source solution which has this uh, breadth of, of supported right. databases. So I feel that definitely attributed to this pattern becoming more popular. And then also, I think actually it's closely related to the rise of Kafka because... Um, you know, very often if you build, if people build their services, so there's this very common situation. They need to modify some state in their database, and then they want to send out some message to other services. So right. let's say you know you have this e-commerce application. You have let's say your REST API, or for for Josh maybe it's a uh, it's a um, protocol buffer based API. Sure. Um, so you know, and they they receive those uh, requests for placing purchase orders. Now what they want to do is they need to persist that information, of course, in their database, so it's uh, you know stored, and then they also want to send out a message to another system, so maybe to the I don't know to the uh, shipment service, so they start building yeah. the package. And now in the old days, coming back to the application servers, uh, how would people have done it? They would have done it uh, using XA uh, distributed transactions, right? So they would have. Updated their database, I guess their Oracle database, and then they would have sent out a message via IBM um, message queuing, right? And it would happen. It would have happened within one shared transaction because you need yeah. to have those uh, transaction boundaries, right? So what you want to avoid is persisting your order and then don't tell the other system about it. Or even worse, I guess, tell the other system, so hey, create this shipment, but then your own database doesn't know about it. So you want to have yeah. those two things to happen atomically. So nowadays, everybody's using Kafka and you cannot use XA transactions there. It's not a thing. And even if it right. was a thing, I would rec not recommend it. But so people still have this need. So they now they would like to update their state in a database and they would like to send a message out via Kafka and CDC actually lets you do this in a reliable way because the only resource which you modify then is your own database. And then you right. use CDC to propagate the message to Kafka. So you don't have this sort of dual write problem. Um, you just update your own uh, database um, and then, you know, DBism or CDC takes care uh, for about of sending this message to Kafka. So a couple of things. Would I use so this way my database so are we, when we say uh transaction logger is that like the the wall and postgres All right exactly it's right. a, it's a okay. wall and postgres the read lock and oracle the bin lock and mysql exactly that okay so this is literally just a very compressed file that lives somewhere that you can tail basically to get all the Data. Right. Yes, uh, exactly. And the written. database has it for two purposes, essentially, for two uh, of its own purposes. The one is transaction recovery. So, you know, right. if it crashes, it can go to the transaction log when you come back and, you know, get back to a consistent state. And then also for replication purposes. So you would like right. to modify exactly. the this information. Exactly, to stand by a source in the database. And exactly as you say, Debezium is essentially like a logical replica, right? We want to ingest all those changes. Right. So this is... In this way, you can use uh, Debezium lets you use Kafka, or actually, no, Debezium lets you use your database as the event source. Yes. Kind of, right? You get right. a stack full of events, and right. you're just reading one from it. You're popping the, the queue of, uh, of, of its uh, events. Okay, so, so then you're publishing these messages. What, how do I guarantee that Debezium and, this, and therefore Kafka has seen every message? And sent it at most once, or at least once, actually. Right, exactly. So that's that's good. So it um, that's a great question. So there is, generally speaking, there is at least one semantics. So what we want to guarantee is that we never miss an event. Um, so 
You know, because that would be like the worst thing if you would put yeah. your data into your analytics system and the data is incomplete, that's like a huge mess, right? So we want to guarantee there is no no data loss, but it could be at least one. So that could be duplicates. So we can talk about when right. those would happen. But generally speaking, Debezium keeps track of the position in the source uh, transaction log, um, which typically is called the offset. And um, this offset gets um, you know updated, so we need to memorize that um, every now and then. And then if you restart, if you restart the Bezium, so maybe you do like a version update and you restart it, then it will go back to the store, which most of the times is a special Kafka topic, and it will read back that offset. And then we know, okay, we need to continue from that particular offset position. Uh, and so now what's the state? In Kafka itself. Right, exactly okay. right. And now what could happen is um, the database could lose transaction logs or it could discard transaction logs while this connector isn't running. So typically, and, and, you know, and that's something you need to just be, uh, you, you address it by means of configuration. So let's say um, you anticipate your Debezium connectors could be down for at most 24 hours. Maybe you do some version update or whatever, and you say, okay, that's my maximum expected uh, downtime, 24 hours. So then you need to make sure that the retention time of your transaction log in your database is longer than that. So maybe two days to be to be on the safe side. Right. And you know, and then when the business comes back, it will be able to go to that offset in the transaction logs and continue to read from there. Okay, so that's very easy. That's, that, that makes perfect sense. I like that. It's pretty genius keeping the state about the uh, messages sent in Kafka in Kafka. Right? right. So, so you really, the only state you're managing is Kafka, which Kafka is good at managing yes, queues and topics, right? Ex exactly right. Exactly right. Um, and now, what I mean, what could happen is so this offset, this is persistent in intervals. So we don't do it like for every record because it would be just too slow. Right. So this happens in intervals. Now, what could happen is we persist this offset, and then we continue to read the transaction log for a few more events. Then we crash because I don't know whatever happens, um, and we don't get to persist that latest that latest offset. But we already sent right. those messages to Kafka, and then yeah. if we got restarted, um, you know, a consumer would see the same events another time, uh, like for a small uh, window, right? And they so, so they uh, need to be ready for seeing those duplicates. Idempotency. There's a... Exactly right. So you need to have like idempotent consumers. Um, the way you typically do it is, um, you know, to. I mean, sometimes it just doesn't matter. You just can re-ingest those same events, and it's fine. Or you right. need to essentially keep track of the IDs which you have seen, and um, then be able to ignore those which you have seen seen before. It's. I I actually so. What we're saying is, exactly once is hard, and. Yes. It's really hard, and it's hard because even if the computer could do it, it would need to know about your business logic. Yes, and, and I feel it's oftentimes it's just easy enough to to accept yeah. it that there could be duplicates on the consumer side, and I feel it's not really worth all the hassle. That being said, there is in the newest versions of Kafka Connect, like three or three or whatever the newest one is, they have support for exactly once in the Kafka Connect framework. And actually, wow. that's one of the you know items on the Debian roadmap to take advantage of that and implement it exactly once in support. That is so cool. But yeah, like that's hard. It's really hard. It it's, is. Yeah, we're recording this in almost 2023, and Kafka Connect and Kafka itself and all these things have been around for a long time. 
This yeah. stuff is hard. Just and and it's it's good that Debezium gives you um, something that works for everybody. Yeah, and with the with the understanding that you should, for at least for now, be prepared to do independent <laughs> consumers. Exactly uh, right. And and I've to be honest, I mean, just by talking to the community. I feel people are generally fine with that. It's not um, not a huge problem. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm. I'm. It, yeah. I, I. I. I think what people don't. I think if you have clients create UUIDs, then yeah. everything else becomes easier because you have the same message. Yes, you know, exactly you right. Same, yeah. You have the same ID. You have some key that I can use right. across all the uh, right the operations that I can use for deduping and all that stuff. So yeah, yeah, exactly. There's a, I don't even know, actually, in, in RabbitMQ and ActiveMQ, maybe in, uh, maybe in, what's that new one, Artemis, was it? Oh, yeah, the, the new Apollo, ActiveMQ one. Yeah, 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 whatever the new one is called, right? Um, they, they had a thing where you could actually specify that messages that have the same certain headers right. should, be just, should be deduped. Right, right, right. Okay. Is there a thing like that in Kafka? I guess there must. I mean, you could just use... Stream processing, I guess. Yeah, I mean, you could use uh, stream processing. I mean, there's, uh, there's of course, the question of um, uh, state which you need to manage there, right? So, if right. do you need to memorize all those? Um, well, that's a window, right? Values. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It, it, it's a window. I mean, the, I, the best thing, of course, is if if those values come from sort of a sequence, which right. like a monotonic, monotonically increasing sequence, because so then you see a later one. Exactly. Then you can do some watermarking logic. Exactly. And you just need to re remember like the latest you have seen. And then if you get one below that, you know, okay, uh, that that must be a duplicate. That's of right. course the most efficient thing to do. That makes yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it, it seems so obvious when you when you and I talk about it, but uh, uh yeah, but you know, it's um, <laughs> I mean, everything is obvious in hindsight, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it, it's oh yeah, sure, let's do it that way. But yeah, I mean, also I didn't know about all those things when I, you know, I didn't know anything about CDC when I started with the project. I mean, the original uh -huh. founder, um, maybe that as a background story, um, yes, the please. original founder of um, um Randall Hauk. He uh, created the project at Red Hat. Then he left. He went to Confluent. So he, you know, he became uh, he had opportunity over there. So he left. And at this point in time, I had been working on the Hibernate team for about five years. I did Bean validation. I did the Bean validation 2.0 spec. Um, we had this not so successful project, which was about taking Hibernate. ORM and um, connected to NoSQL stores like MongoDB and, and, and Cassandra, which was called Hibernate OGM. Um, you know, nobody remembers it. Uh, so this was like a long time ago. Um, and, and I was looking for something new as well. And then this opportunity came up to pick up the lead at Debezium. And I was really, um, you know, curious about it. So I did it, but I didn't know much about it. I, I had to learn all those things. and But I really appreciated also this, this opportunity, of course. So I I do remember you doing all the cool bean validation stuff. That was oh, yeah. a long time ago. I and I it's funny, I I've forgotten, but you remind me and I'm like, oh yeah. Wow, yeah. And then um uh I do remember Hibernate OGM. I didn't know you were involved in it. That's cool. It's like Hobart, I, yeah, I maybe it. you don't remember because I was not the strongest believer into it. And um but, but and then cool that's why features, I guess I wasn't you know? super vocal about it. Well, I, I don't know. It, it had some cool features. I remember yeah. looking at it at the time. Obviously, I'm a big Spring Data fan, but right, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the Hibernate yeah. team does 
good stuff most of the time. So I, I we always take a look because it's just like absolutely, yeah, yeah, I know. I mean, it's yeah, like new, new things they can the spring, right? Yeah, well, they they play well together. Um, yeah, uh, and then and then uh, and then C, so DBC, uh, CDC change it. Uh, that whole what what was the uh, what, when when you talked to? Did you get a chance to like onboard or debrief the? Richard, yes, uh, I did, and... but but it was really wild actually because the thing was that there was two guys uh, working at Red Hat for on, on the Beesum. Then of course the community, which back then was way smaller, but there already was a community. But there was two full time employees working on it. So Randall and um, uh, Horia, which was another guy. So hey Horia, if you wanted, and hey Randall, of course. <laughs> and um, so Randall left because he went to Kaufland. And then Horia also left like the next month because he had another opportunity he wanted to pursue, which meant we went from two people who knew about the Beesum and who were working on it to zero people um, who knew about it within one month. And oh. um, yeah, this was tough. And yes, I had a few calls with Randall and thankfully he also, you know, he was always available afterwards. So even oh, wow. as he was at Coughland, I, you know, I sent him some emails and asked about stuff. But yeah, definitely was was tough because we, so I came in, then Yiji, who is now the lead. Um, so he joined me. So it was two new people. And we were kind of thrown into the cold water and just to see whether we could swim or not. But yeah, I guess it, it worked out in the end. <laughs> I love that kind of stuff. I mean, it just it is a, it's a very interesting project that I it solves a lot of problems. Oh yeah. They, when people think about microservices, they they get they get to yeah, but what if I really need both systems to be on the same state? But right. Exactly. And you have to store it somewhere, you know. Yes. And I even I learn about new new use cases every now and then. So it's, for instance, just this week or maybe last week, I learned <laughs> about a new one which I really hadn't considered a lot before, which is uh, about um, having a SaaS, a software as a service. And what you there always have like a control plane, you know, where which has an API. The user goes to that API and says, "Okay, that's the resource I want to provision. Maybe a Kafka cluster, um, maybe in our case, like you know, a stream processing uh, flow." So they go to this control plane, and then there's a data plane which has the actual runtime artifacts. So that is your Kafka cluster. This is your Flink cluster, or whatever it is. This is your API gateway, and now. You need to, of course, those uh, things, they need to be kind of in sync, right? So if I go to this control, exactly. If I go to this control plane, there will be a database. It will keep track of the user's intended state. And then there's this data plane, which needs to reflect that desired, uh, this desired configuration. And so how do you, how do you keep those two things in sync? So if this REST call comes in, do you go to this uh, control plane database and then you send a, I don't know, a request to the Kubernetes API to make things happen in the uh, data plane? Or maybe not, because it actually, again, is this sort of dual ride, right? Um, maybe, you, I don't know, you cannot talk to Kubernetes at this point in time. So what do you do then? Uh, do you just update your control plane database? How do you keep them in sync then? And CDC actually could help you with that, right? Because you only would go to your con control plane database, and then you would CDC to drive the requests towards the data plane. Actually, you know, going, you're 100% right. And actually, just think, hearing you talk about that, I just, wow. So the Kubernetes, the, the Kubernetes API itself is made um, more scalable and more robust. Yeah. 
but more complicated by the use of what they call controllers, right? Right. And and it's not just controllers. It's it's a controller that has a, gosh, what's that word? CRD, like uh, resource definition? No, but no, it's, what is it? Uh, Give me half a second. Basically, they have something in the code that is constantly Oh, you're like the reconcile loop, I guess. Reconciler, thank you, yeah, yeah. So the reconciler loop is constantly taking the source the, the control plane, as you said, uh, yeah. database, and trying to sync it up with the real world. Yeah. Right? So it's, it's, it's trying to create actual containers and install yeah. actual bytes and do real things. Right. To, to match the state of the database, right? And it, as long as that's not true, then it keeps trying, you know? And I just, I just, it's a very complicated, albeit scalable, right? Because it means that you can, you can try something and then forget about it and then invalidate that it works again the next time. In this loop, you know, yeah. Um, but uh, but uh, but other than change data capture would be that'd be kind of interesting right there. If you, especially if you have exactly once, you know. Yeah, um, yeah, right, exactly. So you know, there's tons of use cases. I mean, most of it, I, mean, I, I would I would say the most common one definitely is replication, like you know, taking data from one database to another, taking data from the operational um, OLTP system over to I don't know, a Snowflake, Apache Pino, oh. a Druid, all those kinds of stores. Elasticsearch, this comes up a lot. Like people want to use Elasticsearch or OpenSearch for full text search, which they cannot really do that well in their relational database. So they want to put the data into those search indexes, and well, they can do that using CDC. So is the so okay? Does the does the as the output of Debezium that data ends up in a topic somewhere in Kafka, and I can just specify where? Right, exactly. So and and exactly. So and then uh, you know this also then touches on this notion of string processing. So as you say, there is by default there is one topic per table. Um, you know, and that's that's fine. So if you want to take this data like one to one and put it into some sort of system, then you would just subscribe to all those topics, and you know, whenever a new event comes in, you would uh, materialize its state in the, in the sync system accordingly. And now, what also happens is, um, oftentimes, if you think about your model in terms of domain-driven design. Your, the data of your aggregates will manifest itself in multiple tables in a relational database, right? So let's say right. you have purchase orders, and in the, easy, in the simplest case, it would be two tables, one with order headers, and then another table with order lines. And together, you have like a one-to-end relationship, and all those things together, a join between those two tables, that represents your purchase order aggregate state. And now... For instance, in, in, in Elasticsearch, in a search index, or maybe in, if you want to take this data to MongoDB, this kind of stuff, then you would want to have this entire aggregate within a single document, right? Um, right. You, you, you wouldn't want to do a, a join there. And actually no. using stream processing, using either Kafka Streams or Apache Flink or other options, you could then join the topic, those two topics together and emit this uh, this output as a single nested data structure and then send it, for instance, to your search index. Now that, of course, you know, that gets, so you're moving the complex, like the headers would need to have like a, here, we are expecting five line items, for example, and if you don't get the five, then yes oh yeah right so that's that's right that's that's a really good question actually um so because in the simplest case you 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 wouldn't know about that so then the the way the stream processing usually works it is it will 
trigger this joining logic whenever there's a change on either side of, of this join. So for instance, let's say you have a table, you have a purchase order with five order lines. What could happen is um, you receive the insert events for those first three order lines, and then this joiner runs, and it will emit a purchase order which just has those three order lines. Right. And then, like you know, the next second we also see okay, there's two more, and the joiner will run again, and we will have the entire purchase order with all the five lines, and we will send that to Elasticsearch. But for a short window of time, you had this weird intermediary state. Yeah, right. you saw this join result, which never really existed in the source database outside of, uh, you know, visible to any consumer or, or client outside of that uh, transaction. And so, yeah, what gets what gets? So does that three does that brief uh, line does that brief product uh, header with three items beneath it just get discarded, or how does the downstream system so it, know? To yeah, so. In the symbols case, it would just be uh, emitted to your downstream systems. So if you did a search, let's say in Elasticsearch in that very second, you only would get search results as they pertain to those three lines. Uh, which, 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 which is, yeah, right, which is a bit weird. And oftentimes people don't want that kind of stuff. And there is a way you can address it in the Bezium. And um, this is that we also give you information about the uh, transaction boundaries on a special topic. And it actually works kind of like you described. So on that topic, we will give you events where we'll, we will tell you, hey, in this transaction, one, two, three, you will receive one header event and five line events. Right. And then completion strategies. Exa exactly right. And then in, in the actual change events, they also have the transaction ID, one, two, three. And now you can implement this logic uh, using Flink, let's say, uh, where you would say, I will only emit this join result once I actually have seen all those events which originate from that same transaction. That's awesome. So this is, that's so cool. <laughs> like, so, okay, that's, that actually answered my, my other question, which is, what is the input? And the input is just by default, it automatically for every table in the schema, or can you like limit it to just? Oh one yeah, or two? you you, to you totally you can, can limit it. Um, you totally can limit it. So <laughs> I mean, you know, people usually they will just capture a subset of tables. Maybe yeah. they are not, uh, or maybe they want to just capture a specific schema, all the tables in one schema, this kind of stuff. But and it's even more fine grained, so you can exclude specific uh, columns. So let's say you have some, and yes, we were asking about GDPR, right? So maybe right. you have some column which has like sensitive data, your phone, just phone number. You don't want to push this out to uh, your Kafka topics. So you can exclude uh, those columns. And now actually, and that's nice you asked that because it's a blog post, which I'm writing just today. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah, that's really too funny. In Postgres uh, 15, you even have the ability to limit that to specific values in your rows. So what you can do there wow. is, I want to emit a change event only if it, if, if it satisfies a specific where clause. So and the, and the example I'm thinking there, so maybe I have some inventory management system and I only want to emit a change event if my inventory goes below five whatever so you know then i can configure uh, give me those change events only if this column value uh, quantity is uh, smaller than five and only then we will actually emit the change event <laughs> that's that's super cool that's like a a watch query like a continuous query in, in something like um, yes right it's it's a, it's a basic form queries. of a uh, continuous query um 
without the joining logic and and you know more complex stuff like yeah. grouping aggregation and so on but yes you exactly it's it's a filter which is continuously applied that's, which i think is so cool. quite useful yeah and that's that's new in postgres 15 i just learned about that um so i'm literally i'm writing a blog post just today and so what is that what is the fact okay so how does it translate to debesium like what is it how do i filter what is the filter input and do you need to write new code to support this new feature, or is there some yeah, thing? No, it, you need to you need to configure things. Um, so, you know, there's and I guess that's a bit of a challenge in Tibism. There's like a really a wide configuration surface with like a gazillion of knobs and options which you can tune and stuff. And for that one, it would essentially be a few options of of the connector, which in that case are even passed through to uh, to the database. Um, you know, very specified. Yeah. Okay, that that's my columns which I would like to filter, um, and, and maybe it's even something which you would configure just within Postgres because we use what's called a publication. So all the stuff like what are the the columns, what are the the row filters that's part of this publication, and use you can also set this up in Postgres yourself and just use I don't know SQL to configure it. But generally speaking, you don't need to program, <clears> so it's <throat> all configuration driven. Right, that's awesome. Uh, now, just between you and me, and I won't tell anybody. <laughs> What's your favorite database? Oh, that's that's a good one. Um, Which one works best? I mean, there there can only be one answer, right? I mean, it must be Postgres, I guess. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I I like it. Um, but also, actually, there's there's a few things which oh, there's one thing in particular which I don't like. And this is if uh, it doesn't really have a good failover support for uh, this replication slot mechanism, which uh, DBism uses. So, um, you know, this replication slot in Postgres, that's the thing which essentially keeps track for the database. How far does a particular consumer has consumed the log? And um, so oh, then wow. it, it, it will know. The okay. Yes, exactly. So Postgres also stores this by itself. And, um, you know, then it will be able to just discard wall segments, which are older than that. And the problem is those replication slots, they are right now not supported by Postgres uh, failover. So if you have like oh. this setup where you have like a primary server, then you have like a standby server and you, you know, you have this sort of uh, failover so you can do um, HA. Um, those replication slots, they cannot fail over currently. So it's just not uh, supported. And this means you need to be very careful how you go about CDC in, in a failover event. Because if you just set up a slot on the new, on the newly promoted uh, primary, then for instance, it could happen if you have already writes before that, that you would miss uh, those writes. So this kind of stuff. So, you know, you can work around it by, by, um, uh, by applying the right procedures. Um, there's some ways, but it's quite tricky. I wish that this would be a bit more um, straightforward. Yeah, that sounds like a pain in the butt. Yeah, it's... it is right. I mean, and you know, and, and um, so for instance, you have maybe you've heard about a Patroni, which is like a, an operator for for Postgres. Um, so they have implemented something which helps you with the failover for replication slots, but it's all it's like it's a bit fiddly and manual, and you really got to know what you do there. Plus, it, plus, it's being done at the controller level as opposed to part of Postgres itself. Which it's is... Exactly, exactly right. Yeah. And I really hope this becomes part of Postgres itself at some point. And, you know, it's just one thing less for people to think of. And, uh, and it, that also is kind of a paradoxical, like normally if you have a replication scenario, you say, we're going to write to the 
main node and will read from all the yeah. other nodes. This encourages the opposite of that. You can only write to one node, you know, because the and yeah, right. yeah, it pushes you back into one box. Well, I mean, yeah, I'm not sure whether there's even this kind of uh, support for for Postgres. I mean, uh, that, that that you could have like multiple primaries, maybe some sort of. I know. I mean, I mean most of the times people use, they use it with just one primary for read and writes, and then many uh, read replicas, which gets you quite far, actually, right. right? But in this case, you just had to log the the publication ID or whatever the offset is not available. In the yeah. Readings. So I mean, right. So you, I, 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 I see. That's yeah. So you would have those replication slots. They would always be on the primary. So you would, right. you would have to go it, to the primary it, it if you wanted to see. Yeah. Yeah, it undoes the benefit of all that replication. That's a, that seems like right, a really big yeah. bug. Well, I mean, I'm not so sure. I don't think it's. I mean, you know, this uh, those replication slots they are quite efficient, or it's it's not. A, I think you are just fine to have that slot running, because I mean, you know, imagine like you have five standby replicas. So if you add like a sixth logical one, which would be Debezium. It doesn't really matter, right? Then you put this data into Kafka and you would drive your consumers from there. So I I think that's fine. Yeah. Okay. That's cool. That's super cool. Um, I love uh, you know, CD, uh, CDC. I love what you're doing uh, and did with Divisium. It's you know fantastic. Uh, and obviously, cool. it, it's a it's a great. I love Postgres. I love Divisium. That solves two of my big infrastructure. Oh issues. yeah, Almost, yeah. Once I'm on the other side of that, then you can stick something like. Uh, Spring Cloud Stream, Kafka Stream, right. Spring Cloud Spring Integration. It's just natural for Spring to flow. Oh yeah, off absolutely. The powered by Debezium, you know. Absolutely. What is uh, you? You, I guess you. I mean, recently you just said uh, you you left. You went to to do a new thing. Is that right? What is that? Yeah. So you know, the thing is, um, so when I when I did Debezium talks, I always. Like to talk about use cases. I mean, as we as we did today, right? So I like to talk about those uh, replication use cases. There is uh, things which we didn't talk about in the context of microservices, like the outbox pattern, the strangler fig pattern. You could implement sagas using the CDC. So there's tons of use cases. Um, but then, if you look at such a data pipeline, CDC is an enabler for those use cases, right? So it answers the question for you: How do I get data out of my data into Kafka? Right. Um, and from there on, you're not done yet, right? You need to think about how you, do you actually implement those data flows. So you need to think about, A, what is my sync connector or how do I consume those events? Is it, is it a bespoke application, maybe implemented using Spring Boot or something else? Uh, maybe it's a Kafka Connect sync connector. Maybe is it Flink, uh, some sort of Flink sync connector. So you need to reason about those things and you need to configure them. And then you need to reason about what's my transport fabric to begin with. So do I want to have Kafka in there? If so, do I want to run it by myself? Do I want to have it in the cloud? Which cloud provider and so on? That's the second thing, like, you know, or maybe I want to use Pulsar or AWS Kinesis. So, you know, there's right. kinds of lots of choices there. So that's the second thing, the, the transport layer. And then you also, you, oftentimes you want to have some stream processing in there. So you want to do this joining, you want to do this filtering and aggregation, all this kind of stuff. So I felt those data pipelines, CDC is just a part of that. And I would like to learn more and reason about and help people with how they can go about implementing those end-to-end -end 
data flows, including sync, stream processing, and like right. whatever that's in between. And then, well, you know, I learned about uh, Decodable, which is the company I'm with right now. They reached out to me and they do managed stream processing as service. It's, it's driven by Apache Flink, but well, that's an implementation detail, mostly because you interact with it via SQL. So that's your, your um, oh, wow. uh, interface. And um, it does then it, it does address all those things because, well, it integrates with Debezium and all kinds of other sources to get your data into Flink. It, it supports a wide range of sync connectors. So you could talk to, you know, Elasticsearch, Snowflake, other relational databases, all this kind of stuff. And well, obviously it has Flink, so it can do all the stream processing, all the joining, grouping, filtering, uh, projection, and so on. Um, and, you know, that's why I joined because I'm just super excited about looking at such a data flow end to end. And hopefully maybe I can help improving the story there, make things simpler for users um, and so on. So this is a SQL. That's super cool, by the way. That sounds like a, a huge undertaking. I can't wait to try it out. What is the oh, yeah. what is the SQL uh, interface that you just mentioned? Right. Uh, so um, you know, I mean, in, in Apache Flink itself. Um, so one of the one of I'm I'm learning about Flink myself right now. Okay. Yeah. And and one of the challenges <laughs> I definitely have is. It's very unopinionated. So for every problem you have or for every question you ask, so, hey, how do I do this with Flink? I feel there's like at least three answers for, for doing it. <laughs> and this makes it sometimes a bit hard to learn, right? Because you need sure. to identify what's the right way, what's the best way for my particular situation. And now in case of, um, or in, in this particular context, so yes, you can use a Java API. And of course, there's like two uh, Java APIs. And for implementing that in a programmatic way, but then you need to be a Java programmer or let's say a JVM person. Um, and then right. you even have like a Python interface. So you need, to, but you need to be a programmer. Sure. Um, and the other interface which they have is uh, a SQL, um, which I believe widens the totally addressable audience by a wide range because now you can, all, all kinds of data engineers, all kinds of people who know about SQL, they can interact with that. And, um, you know, there's, a, it's essentially, it's based by, on Apache CalSite. So maybe you've heard about that. Oh it's yeah. Like, so that's uh, what I was trying to figure out is Apache right. CalSite is an SPI for people who want to map SQL queries to like whatever. Right. And it could be exactly. topics. Right. Kafka. Exactly. Or exactly. And, and so, Exactly. And Flink SQL, you know, makes use of that. And they, uh, you know, then you have operators like for, for doing your aggregate, for your, um, your time window aggregations, this kind of stuff. So essentially the way it works is in Decodable, you define, let's say a source like Debezium or a CDC source. And then you can, um, this gives you what we call a stream. And the stream is essentially like a, like a Kafka topic. Um, it's just a stream of data. And then you can define those streaming queries. So you can say, okay, you know, from this stream, take this data and just select uh, a few um, fields and send it over into another stream. Or maybe take yeah. those two streams, join them and aggregate them and group them and then sync the result over to another stream. And you express all those uh, transformational steps using using SQL. Wow. That, so this is... There's a whole book to be written about how. Oh yeah, totally. SQL Actually, one of my colleagues world, is, you know? is writing a book about uh, this kind of stuff. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. That's so it's not cool. going away. <laughs> uh, SQL is like, yeah, uh, you know, one of my favorite. Um, yeah, 
I mean, there's such, you know, I mean, it's, it has its uh, ups and downs, right? Uh, or like its pros and cons. But yes, I mean, there's a huge number of people who can speak it. And I, when I just played with that myself, yeah. Um, I just felt wow, it's so powerful. So I, you know, I just con configure those uh, those connections. Then I apply a little bit of SQL, and then suddenly, boom! I have this end-to-end -end data flow. It's all run, taken care of for me to to run it, and I, it's it feels empowering in a in in in, this, in a in a weird way. You know, uh, you just set up those things, and you don't have to take care of how it's operated and what happens. I don't know if there isn't enough memory or whatever. Um, right. It's, I feel it's just super powerful for you. And by the way, that's that's what I want. So uh, <clears throat> here's here's where I am in my Kubernetes journey. I can I I if I was drunk on a Friday night, <laughs> like I could still get a stateless microservice app working. Right. But I would need a lot more experience and a lot more alcohol to even begin to manage or to try to manage stateful stuff. Like I'm not, right. I, I don't, I don't want to run Postgres. Forget about yeah. running Postgres and Kafka and Zookeeper, which is optional uh, and Flink and all this. I don't right. want to, I, yeah, I have no exactly. interest in this at all. Right. I don't, totally. I don't hate myself and I have more respect for my time. Yes. Yes. That yeah, might, totally. You know. I made, and then of course for Flink, as I mentioned, there's of course multiple ways how you can run it on Kubernetes. Yeah. <laughs> it has multiple so. operators to choose from and so on. Um, yeah, no, if, you have, if you have the opportunity for this, for you to be taken care of by somebody else, I mean, that's, that's pretty cool, I would say. Easy money. It's super easy. And, and again, the, the reason we care about open source is not because, at least for me, the reason I care about open source is not because of the money, because if I, like, I'm not trying to do it for free. I'm, you know, yeah. what I want is optionality. And by having right. open source, I have exactly. that. Yes. Right? I have yeah. the ability to go somewhere else and do something else if I want to. Yeah. Absolutely. And I mean, there's a super diverse ecosystem around Flink. So there's, you know, um, um, committers from uh, from multiple companies. So I feel it's it's a very healthy ecosystem. Um, and oh, yeah. also when I just joined, I you know, so I, I shared that I would join Decodable and, and instantly people from the Flink community, not even working at Decodable, but working with other companies in the Flink ecosystem. So they asked, so, hey, are you going then to be active in Flink? And uh, what's your plan there? And they were super welcome. And I, oh, man, that's so oh, cool. They are happy for me to be there. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that's because they know what a, a legend you are. And they're just happy to have you on their team. <laughs> yeah. Oh. <laughs> so that's, that's, that's Decodable. I mean, yeah, check it out. If I'm curious about your feedback. I will check it out. And I'm sure... I, I hope people will check it out as well. This is this is such an important. This is like everything. I, this is the next ten years. If the last ten years was getting people to like build microservices and think about yeah. cloud native and and all that, and they agree that small services is better than giant unwieldy services, and maybe there's right. some happy middle ground for like medium sized exactly. services. But then, but if we at least agree that getting smaller than what we have right now is not a bad idea. Yeah, I think the next ten years is getting people on stream processing. You know, absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, um, we, and we touched, we didn't touch on this at all. But I mean, all this happens with a, a low latency, right? I mean, it call, um, it's like real time, not real time in the sense like strict right. hard time guarantees, but real no, time not, in yeah. the sense something happens and you won't learn about it like tomorrow or the week after, but you will learn about it like within seconds or maybe minutes. Yeah. I don't know. And and that's of course. 
a huge uh, differentiator over all the batch-based approaches which people used in the past. And when I talk to people about that, um, sometimes they are first, uh, okay, what do I gain? You know, I'm happy if I have my, my data after six hours. I don't need it right now. But then they go and implement their first use case using CDC. And by the way, with the BSM, you can have data in Kafka way below a second. So let's say from Postgres to Kafka, it can be... 200 milliseconds or even, even less. So it's like really instantaneous. And once people have implemented their first use case and they see their data in their data warehouse within two seconds, maybe. I know people who go from MySQL to BigQuery within less than two seconds. So once they have done this for their first use case, they, oh man, I want to have this for all my use cases. I don't want to wait those six hours for the other things. Now I really, you know, they, they see it and then they really buy into this notion of real time and instantaneous data propagation. Well, this is like the hardest problem to solve, right? Is I want availability, partitionability, uh, and consistency. And it, it seems like for some slightly slower than, you know, one-to-one time, just slightly, just 200 milliseconds yeah. at most. It, it seems like for some definition of availability, it's possible to have all three now, you know? Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. Or yeah. just, or just maybe you don't have it, but who cares? It's effectively. Right. You know? and, I mean, you also, I, I, I think you still are fine with giving up on, you know, some of the consistency requirements. So let's say another yeah. use case is what's called user-facing analytics. So the folks from Apache Pinot, they championed that a lot. And what they do is they have streams and all that. Yeah. And, and they have operational or what they, what they let you do build is you can create operational dashboards based on your OLAP system. So one of the use cases, or I believe uses there is um, let's say Uber, Uber Eats and the Uber Eats restaurant managers. They have a dashboard where you see, you know, what are the drivers in my um, proximity and what are the orders and so on. And that's driven by Pinot. So it's not driven by the operational database. It's driven by uh, Pinot, which means these two things, they need to be kept in sync with a very small latency, right? Because you don't want to have a dashboard with your drivers from a half an hour ago. This really needs to be current so you can, right. I don't know, uh, plan for whatever you do there in your Uber Eats uh, kitchen. And just being able to have something like user-facing analytics and driving end-user use cases based on OLAP systems. I mean, I don't know about you, but I find that's that's like super cool. How, how cool is that? It's thing? the dream. And yeah. for people for people who aren't paying attention, I remember our journey, uh, you know, 2004, 2003, we talked about Hadoop and it was batch. You know, right. big batch. It was big, but it's still batch, yeah. right? Uh, and then you get to like Spark, and it's still batch, but like some streamy bits yeah. to it. Now, now I think we've just gone full stream processing, right? So Flink and exactly. Uh, um, what's that Python one? Flink is oh, uh, that's Flink. a, a, a Faust Forced. I've heard about that. I don't know. Something. I'm trying. It'll come. There's just a, there's actually a several from Apache. Just oh Apache. okay okay. <laughs> like and then Kafka streams of course, which is also right. Apache, yeah. Like there's just so many. It's gotten to the point where now we can have large batch sized chunks of data, and yet it's still almost yeah. real time. Basically, yeah, yeah ex you know? exactly. And I mean, internally, it's it's still micro-batched anyways, right? So if you send yep. something to Kafka, it will happen in batches of all the messages which you have at this point in time. So, yep. you know, it, it's still done for ensuring a good performance, of course. But you yeah. don't know about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's more efficient, too. That's the thing. Is, is exactly. Batches are good for efficiency. I don't want to, like you just said, uh, 
that offset doesn't get updated for every single record, right? Right. Um, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah, it, I don't know. It's so it's so exciting what's happening in this data yeah. space. And I feel CDC and stream processing is really at the core of that, and it's just empowering for people, which you know they can build all this kind of stuff using those technologies. Right. And it also answers the question once and for all: How do I do XA? You know, on a, in 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 a event driven microservice world and the answer is you don't you just exactly don't. right yeah it's not just rethink it you know and it, it seems exactly that's totally true i mean you know even if kafka for instance would support xa transactions and you could do something like updating your database and sending a message to kafka and you do, it would be ensured by xa is consistent i would not recommend to do it because there's always this availability question right so now suddenly yeah. This request, it needs to have two systems to be available. There must be your database and you must be able to talk to Kafka, um, right. which just by definition means your availability goes down because if you rely on more resources, it's just a matter of fact, you know, one of, if you need all of them, anyone could not be available, then you Fail all and slow down. Yeah, exactly. So that's why I still would recommend, even if Kafka would support it, and I don't think it ever would, but if it would support it, still, you know, just go to your database, use CDC, and then, you know, take, right. it, take it from there. Well, and also, the transaction manager itself can fail. Right, in, yeah. In, JTA, in fusing XA, if you're doing JTA, that actually has its own file and its own state, right. and it's vulnerable to its own failures. Like yeah. it's its own single point of failure now. It's, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And I it's would fine. say it's just not not necessary really. Right. So I'm I'm a big fan, my friend. What do you think is the future? What should we like? I don't know. if you could if you could look into your crystal ball, what is something you think people should be looking at now? Because and don't tell me web three. Uh no, I mean <laughs> you mean beyond stream processing, beyond all this sure. kind of stuff? Just in general, I'm just kind of, you're, you're such a smart guy you? and I've seen you do such crazy magic uh, tricks with your code. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it comes back a little bit to the beginning. I think totally people should watch what's happening in the JVM and, and, and Java space because, um, you know, as you said, with SIMD and better native integration, it just gets viable to use Java for so many more right. things. I mean, garbage collection by itself, like you have, um, I mean, I haven't tried, but I totally believe it with ZGZ, you have like sub millisecond uh, latencies, right? So, I mean, this right. means all this tail latency issue, which people sometimes had with, with GC, it's, it's not a thing anymore. So I think, you know, that's definitely a space to, to watch. And otherwise, I mean, the one thing in the data space um, where I feel is, what I feel is definitely happening. So when I started my career, it all you know duplication and denormalization of your data was frowned upon. So we had a guy in the team, and if you wanted to do like a new table, he, you know you had to run it by him. And then if you sensed there was some duplication, so hey, you have this here and you have it there, then he would uh, yell at you and and you know um, hit you with a stick. So he was <laughs> very much into everything must be uh, like super uh, strong normalized and every yeah, exactly. And I feel like this this has changed and this is going to change. So people embrace duplication of your data, of their data, and also denormalization. And I feel it's for a few reasons. One of them is you want to put views of your data close to the user. You know, sure. um, so there's like, exactly. And, and there's like short latency. 
so you want to put the data close to the user. You want to denormalize it so you can do um, you know efficient lookups, let's say, without doing a join on the query side. Maybe you want to use different databases. Maybe you have some use case which benefits from having this data in Neo4j. So it's uh, it's like a graph use case. Um, right. So I feel you know we are more and more embracing this denormalization and duplication. And at Absolutely. the same time, it, I feel there's more work to be done in terms of making this really viable. And of, I mean, of course, stream processing, CTC, they are part of it. But you need to really be sure there's consistency. You need to be sure. Or you, need to, you need to find out if some something is missing or incomplete. So you need to have this monitoring. You need to have uh, you know lineage and insight. Where's this data coming from? Who's the owner? And so on. And I just feel there will be more and more platforms who answer all those concerns like holistically and it gives you this one place to look at and understand about all those concerns absolutely yeah it's it's a big problem but i like where we're headed yeah um, exciting times man <laughs> where do people are you on the internet first of all yeah so, say second. are you on the internet oh yeah yeah i, I just joined yeah and, yeah <laughs> and do you want to be found and if so where can people find you Right, so people can find me on my own blog, which is uh, mauling.dev. So like my last name, mauling.dev. M-O-R-L-I-N-G. Right, exactly. Um, that's that's my blog. Um, then I'm on Twitter, Gunnar Mauling um, on Twitter. Uh, same, I am um, Gunnar Mauling on uh, what's uh, on uh, Mastodon online for people who yeah. are there. Uh, if you want to... Yeah, if you want to endorse my XML skills, you can do that on LinkedIn. I'm there as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, sure. I mean, you know, hit me up on, on, on any of those places. Amazing. My friend, it's been an absolute pleasure to catch up with you again. It's Absolutely. Been too long. Thank you for having me. It was very cool. I appreciate you taking the time. Totally. Josh, talk to you soon. A beautiful podcast is produced by me, Josh Long. I do these podcasts because I believe that everything we do in software is for and made better by people. I want to hear from you. I'm Josh at joshlong.com by email or at S-T-A-R-B-U-X-M-A-N on Twitter, where, of course, my direct messages are wide open. Do you have guest ideas, topic suggestions, feedback? Don't hesitate to reach out. If you like the show, then please consider rating it on iTunes and leaving a review uh, as it really helps the show. I sampled music from Steve Combs's Them from Morning and Springtime and Steve Combs's Small Victory, both of which are licensed under a Creative Commons license. I'm trying to hire production assistants to make the production of this podcast easier. I want to make sure that we can add things like show notes and transcripts and, and just generally do more. If you would like to advertise on the show, then please reach out to me. Uh, and if you can't uh, or don't want to advertise but would like to otherwise support the show, then please consider supporting me at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Josh Long for as low as $4 a month. Thanks again. No harm came to any seasons in the making of this podcast.